last town hall of the fall semester here. Um, my name is Jane Pappas. I use they, them pronouns, and I will be your uh, host and moderator for today's town hall. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, I think this is going to be a really excellent uh, dialogue today. We have some wonderful panelists who I will be uh, having the pleasure of introducing in just a moment here. Before we get into that, um, just a couple of housekeeping things. If you've been here before, you know kind of the general gist of how these go. Um, you are welcome to share your questions with the panelists uh, in the chat feature. What we'll have you do is send Jocelyn Santana a message directly with your questions so that she can sort of filter through them and send them to me. Um, if you have comments for the panelists at any point, please feel free to just put those in the large chat. You don't have to do that privately and we'll be happy to um, continue the conversation in the chat feature. If you are uh, not a panelist, we just ask that you remain muted just to make sure that there isn't any sort of background noise messing things up, but we encourage you if you are able to and comfortable to turn on your video. Uh, it does kind of enhance the experience for everyone if we're not just looking at a, a sea of black screens. So we encourage you to show your beautiful faces this morning. Um, I will quickly put in the chat, which give me one second, our GROWS model, which are our guidelines for discussion. Um, again, if you've been here before, you're pretty familiar with these. Um, we just ask that you kind of keep these as a general framework for today's conversation. So those are in the chat now. Um, and as always, if you have any resources or if someone knows of any like books or articles and it seems relevant to the conversation, feel free to drop those in the chat as we go. I always send out what turns out to be like a full syllabus at the end of these. Um, so we, we love to share the resources and continue our learning after the fact. So with that, um, oh, one more thing. Um, we might be wrapping up today a little bit early than we usually do. I know a couple of our panelists have a 12 p.m. commitment, so we're gonna try to honor that. Um, so we might not get to everybody's questions, but anything that we don't cover, we will probably be able to cover next week in our final town hall of the semester, where we are gonna talk about um, inclusivity in religious practice. But today we're here to talk about um, the historical context of religion and oppression and how these concepts sort of worked in, in tandem and, and in opposition at the same time. Um, and I am joined by three fantastic panelists. I'm so pleased that you all are here today. Um, and I will just quickly introduce all of them. As I introduce you, um, I have a short bio to read for each of them. Uh, when I'm done with your bio, I'll just have you hop on and wave and give a little hello, and then we'll move on to the next person. Um, but I think we're ready to get started. So our first panelist today uh, is Dr. Harrison, trained in social anthropology and, initi and initiated to IFA, the religion of her grandfather. Dr. Harrison meets weekly with a diverse group of spiritual and religious practitioners to discuss meditation and philosophy. She is a lifelong student of IFA and is learning the ancient vers verses of the oral liturgy of the indigenous Yoruba. Above all, her tradition focuses on good character and a good life, measured by the outcome of our behavior. The intention is to please our ancestors and adhere to the highest social good by following the example of Ifa and the Orishas, the divine archetypes. Welcome and thank you so much, Dr. Harrison, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Our second panelist uh, is a repeat panelist. We've had him here before and we're so happy to have him back. 
Uh, we have Professor Ted Williams. Ted Williams III has taught political science at Wright College, Chicago State University, and is currently the chairman of the social science department at Kennedy King College. He holds degrees in public policy studies from the University of Chicago and Rutgers University, and is the former host of WYCC PBS Television's The Professor's Weekly Talk Show. He has provided political commentary for BET TV, WGN TV, NBC TV, uh, Upfront with Jesse Jackson, PRI's Smiley and West, and WV on radio and a host of periodicals. He is an accomplished speaker and actor who has appeared in commercials and training videos for companies including McDonald's, and Empire Carpet, Six Flags, Federal Express, Kraft, and Accenture. Additionally, he is the author of the production Torn the Musical and the book The Way Out, Christianity, Politics, and the Future of the African American Community. He is also a recent contributor contributor to the Third World Press text, Not Our President, and was featured in the film Human Zoos. Williams is a former candidate for Chicago City Council and holds a number of national and local board positions. He considers his most important work as his role as a mentor to young people and as a husband and father to Rosalind and their three beautiful children, Gabrielle, Amaris, and Ted IV. Welcome, Ted Williams, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And last but not least, we are joined by Dr. Swice. Khaldun Aziz Swice, PhD, is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Olive Harvey College and is an Arab American and serves as a tutor in philosophy with Oxford University in England. He was born in Amman, Jordan. His experience entails teaching philosophy for over a decade, as well as speaking at conferences both nationally and abroad, such as Hong Kong, Romania, Australia, and England. He has three books, including Debating Christian the Theism, Oxford University Press 2011, and newest being Killing God, How to Respond to the Seven Most Common Objections of the New Atheism. He is a member of the American Philosophical Association, and he blogs at www.logicallyfaithful.com, which I will drop in the chat. <laughs> so thank you for being here, and welcome to Dr. Slice. It's an honor. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you all here today. I think this is going to be a really fantastic discussion. Um, we're actually going to do something a little different today. Um, Professor Williams has provided us a couple of short videos that are going to sort of set the tone for our discussion. Um, so I'm going to actually share my screen and very quickly show you just two short videos um, that will sort of guide the rest of our conversation here today on this important topic. So bear with me for one moment as I pull up those videos. Actually, I will uh, explain why she's doing that. First of all, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I did not uh, put, uh, I think it's probably not in my bio, uh, but I just won a grant from the Illinois Arts Council to create a production called 1619, The Journey of the People. We were just nominated for the August Wilson Award for the Best Writing of a Musical by the Black Theater Alliance Awards a few months ago, which we're very excited about. And uh, the story of 1619 is really the journey of um, what now is 40 million people of uh, African descent in this country and how that journey has really been not only a, um, a physical journey, but it's been a spiritual journey. And so she's going to show very two short clips uh, or even one is fine, Jane, whatever you want to do, I'm fine with that. But uh, and, and I think I just want to give you a little context because I think that um, the question of justice uh, and the question of faith 
uh, are, are very much their interwoven themes. And I think the production attempts to uh, convey that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, that's very important context. And congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Very exciting. All right. So I think I will show, um, I actually might for a time just show one, but I want to that's show um, After the Dream, um, which actually features uh, Professor Williams here. So can you all see that okay? Yes. I'm going to take your silence to me. Yes. 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 Okay, cool. All right. And then you should be able to hear it. I have my sound, sound shared. Um, somebody holler if you can't hear it. October 4th, 1964, the world met the youngest man to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize that night. A 35-year-old minister who turned his ministry into a movement for civil rights. Some called him a troublemaker. Most of ministers, some knew him as a king. He sparked a revolution of love among the masses and we shall overcome was the anthem they would sing. And yes, it was more significant and exciting than the run winning another championship ring. So while we are in the house of the Lord, rightfully worshiping our heavenly Father who reigns supreme, I have to ask you today in 2019, how many of you will stand tall for Martin's dream? You see, since the 60s, we've been sleep, we've been suffering from a multi-year hibernation Excusing our inaction through procrastination, waiting on our 40 acres and a mule for our compensation. Never realizing that Jesus Christ has given us the power to ensure our own elevation. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really don't matter with me now. Cause I've been to the mountain. I don't mind like anyone I'd like to live a long life. Long Germany has its place. I just want to do God's will. All right. So with that, a very powerful speech. I think we will get started. Um, yes, agreed. Wow, is right. That's very powerful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, so, actually, Professor Williams, do you have anything you'd like to add on to that before we get into our questions? Uh, so, uh, so I just say this in, in you know my artistic uh, uh, insecurities and humility. Um, you know, I sent her three clips, and two of them did not have me in it, and one of them did, and she chose the one with me, and I'm sitting there like, ah, you know, so, but I, I appreciate it. Uh, that piece, After the Dream, is really a tribute to Dr. King, but really looking at, um, you know, it's, it's a lot longer than that, but really looking at Dr. King's civil rights struggle, and the civil rights struggle that was really born out of the faith community, and I think it's so critical 
that we understand in this question of, of um, how we go forward on the issues of social justice that I'm a firm believer that without our faith, where would we be, right? I know that there are obviously different manifestations and different religious traditions, and we're going to talk about that, but the civil rights struggle was a moral struggle. And it is difficult to separate the battles of for the soul of the nation uh, from the battles for legislation, right? And we're in the same situation. I'm rhyming. I don't know why, but we're in the same situation today when it comes to our uh, current uh, political climate. How do we not only change our approach to public policy, but how do we change the spirit and the soul of this nation, which is so obviously broken to me? And so uh, I'm a fan of lots and lots of uh, uh, people, uh, Dr. King and Cornel West, and they're all sort of in these spaces of, of morality and, um, and sort of faith, Malcolm X. But I was listening actually to Marianne Williamson the other day, who uh, ran for president, who is the uh, sort of this, this spiritual guru, if you will. And one of the things that, uh, that she was talking about was that you cannot fix what is broken in this country with just looking at the physical challenges alone. We need a spiritual and internal revolution, basically changing the way that we treat each other, the way we think about each other, and the way we envision what is right and possible in our society. And so I'm so grateful to be here for this conversation, because I do believe that it is so critical, uh, particularly as we're starting anew with this new president and a new opportunity to really uh, have the question and conversation, uh, what is best to not only fulfill our physical needs, but also to fulfill our, our soul needs as well. Mm. Absolutely, I agree. And I think that art is such a fantastic medium for having these discussions and, and thinking about these things. Um, it really allows us to explore and I think get in touch with that spiritual side. So I really appreciate you um, sharing these, this, this art with us today. Um, we have a lot of questions, and I kind of want to start off by framing the conversation in something very concrete, uh, which seems a little odd to do when we're talking about something like religion and spirituality, but um, we like to try to make sure that everybody's on the same page with some definitions before we get into the more heady stuff usually in these town halls. Um, and I think that um, we also want to be sure that we're, we're talking today about religion and oppression, and we're talking about both how religion has been used to oppress, how religion has been a form of oppression, of oppression and how religion can also help uh, liberate us in, in a certain sense from oppression. So we're, we're kind of doing like a threefold discussion here and these are very big topics. So once again, if you have questions with, for the panelists, send them to Jocelyn Santana and we will get those asked. But I'd like to start off by talking a little bit about um, the the, very human nature, like the desire for human beings to gravitate towards religion and spirituality in the first place. Why does that happen? Why do human beings want to, um, I don't know, gravitate towards what we can't see? And I will throw this out to any of the panelists who feel um, like they'd like to speak first and we can kind of establish an order as we go. I think Dr. Twice, yeah. Okay, well, well, this is wonderful we're doing this. This is great that we can have these dialogues and open up a discussion in that regard. Uh, Immanuel Kant, the, uh, one of the greatest thinkers in all of um, history, in philosophy and in, in, in different realms, has said that there are two things that inspire him deeply. The starry hosts above and the moral law within. Both of these point to a transcendent reality. Every culture 
in every place on every continent of the planet has some kind of real belief in a transcendent or a supernatural. All of them without exception of, except for ours. We live in a culture that seems to say, well, you have the average person moving on the street called the nuns who say, I don't believe in anything, which is a, you know, illogical. Everyone believes in something or another, but everyone has a desire to feel significant, to feel loved, to feel a sense of belonging, to feel that their life means something. And it means more than just the physical flesh on my body and the materialism around me. That's in every culture and it's transcendent. It's one of the reasons we all seek for that deep need. It's either in mythology or in theology. Nevertheless, we all seek it in every culture, in every sphere. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, I would like to jump in there. So um, it is true, I would agree um, with Dr. Spice that uh, that all cultures have, uh, I'm an anthropologist, so this is really my wheelhouse in that sense that all cultures claim a non-ordinary reality. Uh, not all cultures have a supernatural being or a hierarchical structure. Um, and so that I would, I would quibble with that one point. There's not a God for every culture, um, but um, I have uh, good friends who are um, atheists and they, they have a, belief in science, if you will, and in some ways science replaces their uh, need for their recognition of divine forces. And so I, I would also just like to say that, you know, the question, I, I love this question of why religion, I just finished teaching that unit in my anthropology class. And so I, and I have a long list, but I, I boiled it down to five things. Um, people need uh, what religion and spirituality provides to them in general, which is uh, community. So um, I've practiced Buddhism uh, as a meditator, and one of the things that I, in Nichiren Dashon and Buddhism that they talk about, I don't practice that form anymore, but they talk about the fact that you cannot practice alone, and that what happens to the individual who practices alone is uh, a twisting and a, uh, a turning that... Um, throws people off into strange places. Um, they get lost. Um, similarly, as a person who's been very interested in um, African religion and shamanistic religion and indigenous tradition, uh, another thing that you don't do is inquire or look into the occult alone. Um, ironically, I was charged with never ever touching a Ouija board um, because as a child, I mean, my family, I guess, has this um, sort of underneath the Christianity, there has this always been this sort of seer philosophy that is amusing to me as I uh, step all the way into that 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 practice. But there have always been seers, and I think I was told early because it was this idea that if you open doors, spiritual doors, if you don't have the technology to close those doors, you are going to get sucked into something that you may not be able to control, or you may let something into this world that you may not be able to control. So. The idea, that first idea is that we need each other and religion is one of those ways in which we are able to come together uh, collectively to share our mystical experiences, to share our dreams, to share our, uh, our understanding of the world. It's what makes us human. It's one of those things you could say a, an essential part of culture. Um, and so religion in some ways really is 
is a microcosm of the cultures that we come from a way of passing on values, knowledge, beliefs. Yeah. Well said, Dr. Harrison. Yeah, if I may add uh, something to what you just said regarding that, that need to fulfill that. The Pew Research uh, Organization just released a study uh, that they concluded showing that people who are religious or spiritual in their orientation report to have happier lives than those who do not have that or have that significance or that community or that sense of transcendent in their lives. Uh, you can take a look at that research that was done um, peer-reviewed as well. Professor Williams, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I, my colleagues <laughs> hit it very well. I'm sure I'll uh, be adding to the next question. Okay, perfect. So um, I also want to talk a little bit about the difference between, um, like, the difference between religious institutions and religious practices. I think a lot of the time um, the two get conflated and people often feel like a spiritual practice must happen within the context of an institution in order to be considered legitimate. Um, and often I think that religious institutions sort of, I, I don't know, I think sometimes there's a sense that they uh, purport themselves to be made up only of, of individual religious uh, practices. And I think that both of those things are sort of true, but also not true at all. Um, so I'd just like to hear your kind of thoughts on how, how those two differ, religious institutions versus individual practices. Well, I, I'll, I'll hop in on this question. So, you know, we... We live in a culture, and I think probably in America, I would say probably in the 1970s, I think political science, I think about a lot of things in sort of the political space, 1970s Watergate uh, really helped America to, um, create, uh, to begin to create an anti-institutional culture, right? We saw our highest leaders uh, doing things that were uh, we thought to be immoral. And what you found, although America had always kind of had this this undergirding of sort of rebellion from our founding in 1776, I really think that Watergate is a watershed moment, if you will, uh, around this, this question of institutions and our belief in them. And so I, you know, I would make the argument that for the most part, our nation tends to be anti-institutional and yet, we still need institutions, right? Um, those institutions like um, businesses and uh, academia and even the faith church community are still critical. Now, we have to be able, because I know part of what we're talking about is religious oppression and that sort of thing. I think we have to um, figure out a way to distinguish between uh, the faith as institutions and faith as individual expressions of a relationship with, with the deity. And I think those two are very uh, clear, distinct differences. But I would, and I would say, if you look at, for instance, uh, my faith tradition, Christianity, the institution itself has been responsible for a horrible amount of atrocities across the world. I mean, I am, I am uh, ashamed to say that, but it is, it is true from the Crusades to the promotion of slavery, you name it, an uh, uh, unbelievable amount of atrocities, and even today still atrocities occurring. I would say, however, that the same institution has also been responsible for the creation of charity, has been responsible for the uh, creation of um, anti-poverty initiatives, you name it. And so both of those exist simultaneously. I think in our culture today, we are uh, constantly, particularly in the area of spiritual life, uh, tend to want to live in the space of I have a religious tradition, but I'm not connected to an institution. And that is one potential expression of religious faith. However, 
I think we lose out if we reject institutions in every capacity, religion included. For instance, if someone says I'm self-educated, I don't believe in colleges, but I go and get my information, um, they may very well be brilliant, but they will not get the same academic uh, respect that they would get coming to an institution like NIU, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the same way with faith communities, we have to ask the question, how do we retain what is good in those institutions? while leaving what's bad behind. It's the old adage of chewing the fish and spitting out the bones. Go ahead, Dr. Harrison. So absolutely. Um, I mean, these are very, very potent. This is a big question. Um, I mentioned before, at least one philosophy about why it's important to stick with the, the fabric of society, which is our institutions. Um, but then you, and so, and so we ask ourselves, what is it that we think of, for example, the indigenous traditions that are suppressed or the African traditions um, that are suppressed um, in China, for example, people are not allowed to practice um, Christianity or indigenous traditions are frowned upon um, and so when, when do we, and I think this is an interesting coming, you know, full circle, when do we, when does our, uh, our liberation tie into our religiosity? Um, and how does that, um, how does that allow us to um, struggle against the system that may be oppressing us? But then at the same time, um, you know, there's always the inversion of that as well, where, the, you know, our institutions, our religious beliefs, can also be used to oppress and, and contain us or, or justify our um, oppression. So in the, the case of, of people of color, we find this. In the, in the case of the LGBTQI community, we find this to be true. Um, you know, there are um, you know, a number of ways that this goes back and forth. In my own tradition in Ifa, there is a really interesting dynamic. Um, there's a lot of duality because everyone practices when people take on this religion, a lot of times they repre reproduce, um, sometimes, unfortunately, in the Americas, reproduce some of the same hierarchies that are coming out of slavery. And you see some very interesting manifestations as we work out some of these issues, but at the same time, um, practiced in the way that it's practiced in our uh, root cultures in Africa, for example, in Nigeria and Benin, um, your own household is your household. You know, your ile, which is your religious household, is yours. And there is no higher authority in for your family than your own uh, uh, practitioners. However, there's also this dynamic between the spirituality of the tradition and the religion, where the spirituality is found in how people dream and the role that the ancestors play. Your ancestors are your own ancestors. My ancestors are gonna be always on my side. Even if I'm being awful, they're gonna come, they might give me a spanking in some form, like they might make something not happen that I really wanted or get in the way or send me a message, you better get your act together just like your mama would. But they're not going to, you know, they're always on my side. And so there's always these questions of how do I behave within those contexts that are my own household and my own 
appeal to the Orishas to show me the right way, the ancestors to show me the right way, and how then does that link to the larger community? So there's a dynamic, um, and there's always those who violate those dynamics, and we have um, sort of a negative appreciate, the negative form for people called the alase, people who just have spiritual power, but it's unchecked. It has no, um, it has nothing, no responsibility to 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 the larger community. So always in in the ancient tradition that I belong to, there's this balance between the institution or the isheshe, the larger community, and then your own journey. And literally the way you even describe your spiritual life is that you picked a journey before you came here, you picked ahead, as they say, um, and that your journey is your own journey. And even the issue of morality, like there are some people in this tradition for whom lying <coughs> is their road. It's, it's interesting because if the outcome of, there's always that classic ethical story of if a priest answers the door to, a, 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 you know, to a, um, an ax murderer who wants to kill the family, um, does the priest lie and violate his, his ethics and his oaths in order to say no and save the family? So um, whereas in absolute, more absolutist terms, you would have to tell the truth. Um, I'm a person who has to tell the truth all the time or get in big trouble. Um, whereas I have, a, I have people who are much more trickster oriented and that's a divine role. So there is a place for everyone under the sun. And I think this is where a lot of tolerance comes from, perhaps in my own mind, in my own experience, in my own expression, is there's a lot of tolerance. There are people who are just, sort of, I think the word is witchy. They kind of just have power. And they, have, they can speak things into existence. Um, and then there are people who have to earn, you know, through good behavior, um, earn the right to manifest leadership and power. And so it's not, it's very complicated. I think a tradition that has the space for everyone, I think is probably our best bet in which we are, have some balance between the forces of the universe and the forces of the energies of different people and how they work. A lot of people don't agree with that because, you know, it's not your works, but your intention in my tradition, it's your, not your, it's not your intention, but your, your outcome, your works. So it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act. Yeah. If I can hop in real quickly, I'm sure Dr. Dr. Uh, Dr. Swaggle has something to say about this, I'm sure. But I want to hop in real quickly and just push back slightly on this issue of moral relativism, right? Um, and understanding the great need for moral, cultural, uh, ethnic diversity, I, I do want to push back slightly on the question of moral relativism because we've just gone back to the politics for a second through four years of having a morally bankrupt person in the White House. And, you know, whatever you think about that, I said that, right? I don't think that's a super controversial statement, but it, it is controversial in this country, oddly enough. Um, and so when I look at that, for him, I've thought a lot about sort of what he's meant. I've been writing about uh, the Trump administration and that sort of thing. And when I think about this question, for President Trump and folks who have supported his uh, ascension to power, uh, Mike is right. And every method of um, exercising power is justified in a space where morality is relative. And I think that part of my work is writing about and thinking about how various moral traditions 
can agree on civic principles. And those civic principles are, to me, can be communicated in a universal way. And I would make the strong argument, and I've had this, I've been teaching, I, I was invited to teach uh, this question of the election a lot over the last couple of months. And I remember being in a particular church uh, setting where they asked me to talk about um, the election without really taking sides. And I told them I couldn't do that because I, because I said to them, I said, if we are here to ask uh, direct questions of morality, it is impossible for me to be morally neutral when I see what is going on in this country every single day. And I don't think being neutral during times of crises is a virtue. So I would suggest that we have to have a, uh, throw down a moral gauntlet in some way, shape or form. Now what that looks like can be negotiated and discussed, but we've gotta have it because once again, a free society requires us to have some level of self guiding morality and once again we have witnessed what happens when um the morality is circumstantial and the morality is based on self um self-promotion and the great damage that can be done in the society as a result and i think that this presidency ought to be a huge lesson to us and a good one by the way because our institutions which we talked about have protected us Without those institutions, um, this person would have done much more damage, I believe. But with those institutions, I think we recognize that um, we were protected in that way. So I just, I think that that's a very important thought to throw on the table. Anyway. Dr. Seiss, do you have anything you'd like to add? I'm sure he does. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I would have no just waiting because I just want to say something. <laughs> well, John Adams said the constitution of this country and the republic can only be maintained by a religious and a virtuous people. You knock out religion and spirituality and you make re virtue relativistic to whatever people think is right and wrong. You... Uh, you will lead to a knocking out of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You end up with a tyranny instead of a republic. And that is what general, a lot of cultures have led to. And that's something we have to be very wary of. And go back and harken back to the founders that spirituality is essential in understanding the, the transcendent nature of moral virtue, the understanding the transcendent nature of human dignity in order for us to um, uphold even the minority and the, the struggling people in our communities and in the world around us. It's not about right. I mean, might, it is about right, and right is not just whatever I want it to be. It has to be something greater and more transcendent than me. This is where you get spirituality. This is where you get the moral law. This is where you get natural law. That you can come in there and have a great conversation regarding the grounding of the very republic of law that we have. Absolutely. I think, though, that the question of moral relativism that I describe, oftentimes the, the African perspective or the Europe perspective is not uh, doesn't fit well within the frameworks that we've we've learned. And so um, I, it's not moral relativism that we're talking about. But I ask you to consider um, if we could abhor, uh, let's just say, Donald Trump, as um, as many people do. And if he did the right thing, would that be sufficient? And I think that's the kind of thing we need to think of is that it's not the judgment of who he is, 
but it is what he does. So that that is the question and the issue that many people have with him is that he is this flamboyant, narcissistic person. Um, but with uh, within that context, it's not. I think his recently his um, his campaign manager said, "Listen, you know, we would have done better in the election if Trump had shown empathy for people." Um, during the COVID crisis, and that he felt that we he that that, that campaign lost, uh, you know, the the suburbs because people were in fear, and then we know that fear is a great motivator um, uh, for people when it comes to their leadership. And so the issue is, you know, could we abhor the personality? Because obviously, our president is not a deity, right? Our per- president is a person with faults. And so the question becomes, but nonetheless, we expect that person to do the best job and have the highest outcome for the American people, um, what they think and believe notwithstanding. Now, I find very big problem with people recognize or I arguing that, um, that a religious people um, that the American people have to be religious in order for there to be a moral and ethical uh, 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 reality. We have very, that's the, that's the setup for conflict because now we have to argue about what religion we are practicing and our interpretation of religion and spirituality as opposed to focusing on what I believe this nation is about, which is the highest and greatest good for the most people and you know the administration of the resources that we have in a responsible and respectful way and an, a, a capacity for people of many different faiths and many different belief systems to live um, as has happened in many nations in the past. Turkey, for example, is well known for the, um, for the, um, the uh, harmony at least up to a certain point historically that that the many different faiths um, uh, were able to coexist um, uh, in, in, in that nation historically. Um, so I, I want to make it very clear that in my tradition, it's not moral relativism. Again, the outcome, which is that's the contrast. It's not just your intention. I intend to do well. I think I, I want to do the right thing. It's we're not measuring the ethics and morals by that we're measuring it by what is the outcome of the behavior so again if okay. trump is a person who is able to actually uh create um positive change and support and and help the american people you know i think it's irrelevant what his personality is but clearly he was not concerned about his outcomes his outcomes were poor and by the way i have family that believes that trump is um, a person who is restoring the religiosity to the to the president, and they have actually it's, it's ironic because what I'm saying actually show, there's a there's the fault is shown there. They're saying they don't care about his behavior because he proclaims to be a Christian, and that that matters more to them than his behavior. So, and I have to respect these people in my family who are who are. Um, in the religious right, and believe that that is the that that that's the reason why he should be president because half the country apparently has a similar belief that he is maybe not personally uh, um, you know personally a good person, but that he represents 
the right kind of leadership. And I would argue, and the argument again I have with them is, yet, yeah, what is his outcome? Right. His what is his behavior leading to for us as a nation? Can I, if I, if I might hop on this real quickly, um, you know, I, you know, Dr. Harris and I are very good friends. So she has to respect her family's opinions about this. I don't. So, and, and that's okay. I mean, I, <laughs> I love them, but I, I don't have to respect your respect. Only half my family. Only half my family. Only half. Right. So uh, to her question about empathy, right, I saw the same report about if we if you show more empathy during COVID-19, this, this would have been a big, a different outcome. Uh, you cannot show what you don't have, mm-hmm. right? There's a scripture that says that you judge a tree by its fruit. This is why the moral compass of a person is so critical. This whole vetting process that goes through when candidates come through, uh, you know, who they are. You know, some people go, well, it shouldn't matter what they do in their personal lives. And, and, and obviously, I'm not sort of overly committed to that. Like, oh, my gosh, what if they do with this relationship? But when you look at the totality of a person's life, right, their outcomes are based on what's in their hearts and their minds. And, you know, I think that those things are so important because if you can get that piece right, then the decisions that come, which we don't know are going to come, can, can be dealt with. You know, Dr. King said uh, that the greatest goal of education is uh, to infuse character into uh, people who are learning. And as, I, as a parent, I think about that a lot. I think about how do I help my children to become more moral and pe- people with good character, with empathy and compassion, that sort of thing, so that no matter what happens to them, right, because I can't, I can't predict what's going to happen, but I can give them the tools to deal with it. And the last thing I'll say on this is, uh, Dr. Harrison's so right about our, uh, you know, intentions, that sort of thing. Here's something that I have learned that has been helpful to me, that has helped me to deal with relationships and things like that with people or whatever. I have heard someone say that this uh, years ago that we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge other people by their actions. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it's such a weird sort of way that we do this, this, this moral, you know, uh, uh, twisting, if you will, that we all do, by the way. We all have a sense of morality. Even those who feel that we're the least judgmental in the room, we have a sense of morality. There's a sense of morality in the prison system, right? There's certain crimes that people go, oh, you did that crime, that's cool. There are other crimes people come in and they go, oh my gosh, you're horrible. We're going to beat you up here because you don't do that kind of thing. And so everyone has this, and the question becomes, how do we develop it for ourselves, have some level of humility in dealing with other people, but then still call bad actions bad and call good actions good? And I think we have to figure out how to do all of those. Yeah. I think, I think that's so true. And um, we've actually had several audience questions kind of come in as we've been having this discussion about you know morality and right and wrong and all of that. And I think that that's sort of getting at this bigger idea of... Um, kind of what we're here to talk about today too, where um, religion and religious institutions have a great deal of power for personal empowerment and community and um, providing a sense of of right and wrong for people. Um, And many folks have been wondering, you know, we had several questions kind of along the lines of how, how can we begin to um, have, have, conversations about religion and, you know, bring religion into the forefront of our dialogues around, you know, even thinking about social justice, when for so many years, religion and religious institutions have been used to oppress people, um, often in minoritized communities. I think Dr. Harrison brought up that there were some folks, um, there were some communities like the LGBTQ plus community is a really uh, strong example where many religious institutions um, don't allow that um, as as a part of being a part of that community. 
Um, and also religions have often tried to like oppress each other. They often try to rank each other in a hierarchy of we're the best one. And if you're a part of this one, you're not nearly as, as good. And, um, you know, I guess how, how do we, um, reconcile these things? How do we begin to, um, you know, participate in a religion that might feel like it is not, uh, safe or good for us to be a part of? What does that look like? Hmm. I'll hold off if someone wants to have a question. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go fine. It's fine. But uh, I think the key in all of our human interactions, all of them, uh, someone said this to me, you know, a few months ago, and it has stuck with me, and I use it all the time because it's so resonated with me that the thing that is most lacking in our world is empathy and, and critical thinking. And when we have empathy for other people no matter who they are or what they are or where they are we are able to stop our judgment for a second you know jesus in the scriptures in the new testament gave his greatest rebukes and gave his greatest um condemnation for the religious hypocrites of the day that's right the oppressive religious hypocrites of the day and so compassion is, is at the core of, to me, the, the right kind of religious expression, right? You, there's got to be compassion. But what I recognize when it comes to social justice is that compassion coupled with critical thinking is what is needed because when you look at the, the layers and layers of history, and systemic uh, uh, institutional decisions that have occurred for generations that create the conditions we see today. If you don't have critical thinking, you will miss the boat. And if you don't have empathy, you will miss the boat. And you will drive around cities like Chicago and go, oh my gosh, look at these people are killing each other. They should just get up and stop killing each other. And they should get up and get a job and do this thing. And it's, and it's ignorant. It's completely ignorant because it's devoid of any historic and cultural context, critical thinking. But also, if it lacks empathy, then we as Americans go, well, there's violence in this neighborhood. I'll just move to this neighborhood. There's COVID-19 in this state. I'll just move to this state. Life doesn't work that way. No. At some level, we are all connected. We are. We are. But I, I want to emphasize the fact that those of us who don't learn from our history are doomed to repeat it. That's just not on a personal level as a teenager would do that, but it's also a societal level like Ted was talking about. Um, it is important to emphasize as we're discussing religion and religious institutions in general that the, um, the, the importance of seeing that the, the good that religion has brought to this country specifically, the founders and others who brought things, who brought some terrible things, but they did bring some good things. And we can't minimize or ignore those. For example, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge in England, and others were started as institutions and seminaries. All but two colleges were started by the Christian Church in the United States. By the close of the 1860, all 246 colleges in America were founded by the institution of the church. The major organizations that helped with AIDS, the um, major organizations that helped, for example, the, the huge earthquake that happened in Haiti, where most of those humanitarian organizations were from the uh, religious groups like the American Red Cross. 
Hamas, which helps over 13 million people in over 187 countries around the world. Uh, people like uh, Compassion International, the Salvation Army, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse. These are organizations that are the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. The Roman Empire, where Christianity grew from, did not have hospital beds for the broken and the poor. It did not have a welfare system. Many countries don't have that because they're not rooted in a system that says even the least of these need to be helped. And that comes from the belief in the Judeo-Christian ethic of the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God in each and every man, woman, and child. You're special because God declared you to be special. It is my responsibility to help you, not to oppress you or to do that. So there are institutions that took that wonderful responsibility to help, and some of them have used it for evil, some have used it for good, but we can't ignore that the foundation of it is a transcendent one, and it does come from the Judeo-Christian ethic worldwide. I'm going to hop on that just quickly as well. Uh, that is true, and I am a firm, firm advocate for everything that he said, particularly when it comes to education, particularly when it comes to uh, social services. Um, I would suggest that uh, that uh, Judeo-Christian ethos has been um, wholly um, beneficial uh, in many ways for human flourishing. However... You know, there's a however there, right? There's always a but. However, always a but there. <laughs> there is a but there. And, and, and once again, and this is, you know, we all kind of, you know, the cool thing that three of us get to sit around and think all day and, you know, teach and stuff like that. So I, I really enjoy it. I'm always thinking about these things. I'm always moving. Dr. Harrison's like, doesn't know who I am because we've been uh, teaching together for years and I've been sort of evolving as we go through, you know, in many, many ways. So I'm sure she's like, who is this guy, right? But what I will say is, I think as bad as uh, uh, poor the uh, ideology in our society, there's also been really bad theology. And that theology has been coupled, unfortunately, and let's just call it what it is, it's been coupled historically in the American context with white supremacy. And because it's been coupled with white supremacy, it has negated some of the really, really good things that are there. I mean, there's some really good stuff. Just, I mean, the, the principles in the Declaration are amazing. If you think about it, all men created equal, down but I created with certain animal rights, life, liberty, and heaven. That's great, but they were not meant for me. They never were meant for me. Thomas Jefferson never saw a place for me in this society. He wrote in this uh, letters to on the state of Virginia, uh, notes on the state of Virginia, that uh, you know people of African descent were um, physically inferior in the dominance of mind and body, and so they were never meant for me. These the, the institutions um, where slavery was promoted by the church heavily. Now, the church also, which is the beautiful theological battle, which is why I don't give up on religion, because the church also is at the forefront of the abolition movement as well. And so you have these, this wrestling going on, but I, I, it's very hard. It's, it's, you know, it's difficult to look at our history and not recognize all of what exists. And I think, unfortunately, I'll just say this to be quiet, but I'm not saying Dr. Spice is doing this because he's not. But I think, unfortunately, in our culture, what does happen is that it's all or nothing. You know, either you love America or you hate America. And that is such a ridiculously ignorant binary way of looking at this. We can look at how this country has laid out some beautiful principles of freedom. And we're getting where we need to be eventually. But we also must recognize the historic atrocities, the 11 million Africans that were brought here through the transatlantic century, the, or, over 100 million Native Americans from 1492 uh, to currently 
that have been killed through disease and removal of land and all of these other things. And so how do we how do we do both? We've got to be able to take an honest look at our institutions, our religion, and also our, our cultures. And may I add to that, Ted, this is this profound point you made. Gandhi said it the best. I will believe more of your faith when I see you walking like your founder. I will believe you. <laughs> How many Christians are like Jesus, right? Now, I think the key is to go back to the founder, right? How is Jesus himself represented? What did he say? And what are his teachings? And what is his work? I think his incarnational um, um, exemplification of the divine within himself is what we should look at. Not necessarily the bloody hands of some of his followers. And that's uh, not fair to say to judge the entire faith by the terrible atrocities done through the Atlantic slave trade, oppression, and the Jim Crow laws and things of that nature. And 1963, Martin Luther King penned one of the greatest letters ever written, the letter from Birmingham prison. And he hearkened in that letter back to the Declaration of Independence and ultimately back to the God he followed. And it was his faith that drew him to start what he did. And it wasn't something else. And I, I don't want to minimize that and say that it was some, his, his desire for humanitarian work. It was, but he was a minister at heart. Right, but I will say the one thing, that the challenge that people have, and I'll say this in two sentences or less, is that the atrocities have not been atoned for by these communities. And until there is restitution and humility around these issues, it doesn't change. Dr. Uh, Malcolm X said you can't put a knife in a man's back six inches, take it out three inches and call it progress. There has to be a repair of the damage done. Yes, some of it was stopped, and that's awesome. But it's like if I rob you of $1,000 and stab you, and I walk away and say, I'm not going to stab you anymore, I'm not going to rob you anymore, I'm still laying on the ground bloody. And the mainstream community, the faith-based community, the Christian, Judeo-Christian community in America, unfortunately, for the most part, not completely, but unfortunately, is unwilling to take those steps in restitution. And that, I think, would go a long way towards even making the faith more appealing to people who are outside of it. You're talking about reparations. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean it to. <laughs> I understand what you mean there. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's a whole different discussion, right? I want to jump in here because I think it's, it's so interesting. When you're sitting where I'm sitting, um, I'm of Jewish uh, descent. I uh, practice uh, meditation and philosophy with Buddhist people. My grandfather practiced Ifa and, and claimed to be, all the while claiming to be Native American. I was raised in the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. And I have traveled many roads looking and trying to understand spirituality um, and my relationship to each of these faiths. Um, and what I have found is there's a, there's a thing, and I'm not sure if it's a Jewish or Islamic or both, saying that the tongue of man has never spoken the true name of God. And I will add um, that, that Yoruba say very clearly that um, the human head cannot contain infinity. Hmm. We can't even count all the grains of sand on a beach on the United, in, the, in the United States, much less the planet. We can't count that high, much less to consider all of the planets that we know exist, that we can't even, we can't count that high. And so to even consider that we can imagine, that we can conceptualize the infinite, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnipotent is arrogant at best. And what, but however, as an anthropologist, as one who has walked in many shoes, I will say that the search for the divine is so grand and such perhaps the best that we are is the seeking 
the question and the knowing, as, as Professor Swice said, that every culture seeks this highest and best good. Now, I must take issue with the notion that the Judeo-Christian um, axis is the basis of all good. Um, I, I will give you a personal story about how my tradition saved me and other people. If you remember 9-11, the stories for me out of 9-11 are so compelling because not a single person in my tradition was, and I had three people who worked in, in, the, in the Twin Towers, not a single person died that day because they were all waylaid by our spiritual practice. They were all waylaid in particular ways. There's a Orisha who is a, an archetype, the manifestation of beauty and joy in life, not Venus because it's beauty and joy in community. It's a much more complicated concept of beauty. And the person who, that the priest of her could not figure out what to wear that day. Out of 20 years, never been late for work, but it was the, the this axis of beauty where her Orisha reached out to her and said, uh-uh, not today. <laughs> that's not good enough. And that's classic Oshun, she always says. And if you guys know who, um, what's her name? Uh, the the singer, uh, she wears all the yellow and lemonade. She's doing- Beyonce. Beyonce is performing Oshun so that if you, if, you know, people have some relationship already with it, if they know who Beyonce is um, and her, some of her lemonade album, that's what she's talking about, being manifesting this queen of power and, and beauty and community. Um, another story comes out of Haiti where the Haitians were using, who were able to, to, to understand what they needed to do in order to save themselves in the great um, earthquake. My own personal story, I was in New Orleans and um, the Babalaos told us, and Ianifas told us it's coming. And we had many events where we were told this is where people were manifesting is in our tradition, you experience God, right? You manifest, um, we've even, that part has even been, you know, manifest in Christianity where people experience, they get the spirit, they, they're physically moved by God, by the spirit of God. Um, and so they, we were told, hey, you better get out of here, this is the real one, you better get out of here. So we were saved and a whole community was saved. Um, the African Meeting House in Boston in 1789. These are Africans coming together. Um, and Sun Ra talks about this continual presence of all these the manifestations of black culture that you see are from the secret societies of us practicing our African beliefs and ways and allowing us to come this far by faith. Yes, but you know, and that is why Africans, my godfather who met with the Pope and represents indigenous traditions for the first time in 2018, the Pope invited among all the other people who came, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Jewish people, the Christians, the Orthodox. He invited uh, Wande Abimbala, who's my teacher, who's my godfather to represent. And, and um, it was an amazing event. It's the first time that's ever happened. And he says uh, uh, um, that I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> but our, but our, our, our culture. Um, oh, he says that Eva will save a broken world. He's written a, I went to, I actually got up and went to go grab it. I couldn't find it. I found a different version of it, but the idea that the indigenous knowledges are what will save us going forth. Oh, I know what it is. He says, Africans love religion. They don't care. But come on, bring it. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Jesus, bring it. 
We want to know. We want to get involved. We want to know the spiritual world. Um, and so when people look at me like, you're, you got too much going on. I said, well, no, I'm an African. Bring the information. Bring the knowledge. Bring the wisdom. Um, Dr. Swice has behind him this uh, panel that says, are you out of hope? And I, and I just want to reiterate the role that religion plays is to give hope where there is none. To, 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 to house our wisdom, our collective wisdom, to share it. And without this compassion, without this ability to hold more than one thought at a time, more than one spiritual understanding at a time, then we lose the inheritance of humanity. This is the inheritance of humanity and the idea of one being better than the other is just patently absurd. But because we think of, you know, I have a wonderful relationship. Uh, we think of Jesus as a manifestation of Obatala, the kind one, the one who comes and heals and saves, the good father. Um, and so there is a place for all of us at the table um, and when we remember that and have respect for each other, I think that is what solves many of these problems of, you know, jockeying. Oh, I know the final thought is, is that the problem with religion is not religion. It's the people. My godmother from New York, from Brooklyn told me that. Just the people is that people are religious and people are the problem in the sense that we have our moral failings. And so we look to these ancient traditions that rise above the simpleness and the and the, you know, the venal nature of humanity. And we look for these highest, best versions of ourselves. In our tradition, they are represented by the Orishas, by Oshun, by Yemanja, by Ogun, by Eshu, you know, by Obatala, by Ifa, um, Osayin, Orisha Oko. So we look to these greater, better versions of ourselves. The Buddhists have something to say about that too. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people are so amazing that they don't even ever seek enlightenment. And the Buddha says, go past, go on past that. But <laughs> right. this is the journey. These are the journeys that we have to act like Jesus, to act like Obatala, to recognize the best of who we are. That's a great point, Dr. Harrison. Jamie, if I may just uh, link the two discussions together with, a, with an analogy. Go for it. Uh, so if you're on the waters and it's the middle of the night, uh, you need a, a compass. If you're traveling in a city you've never been to before, you pull out your phone for your GPS, hopefully you have satellite coverage. You need a GPS, you need a compass spiritually too. You can't just go out, me and God on my own, or me and Jesus, you know, whoever it is I'm with. No, it's I need that community to guide me as much as it guides itself. And now I also need, something Ted mentioned earlier, Professor Ted, logic and reasoning. This is where cults are born of people do not question their tradition, question themselves, and use logic, reasoning, evidence, which is in the Christian tradition, we, use, we call that apologetics, to question whether the foundation of what you believe, where your compass is pointing, is it pointing to true north, or is it pointing to wherever your fancy is that day? Because believe me, the more intelligent you are, the more creative you are, the more you can justify anything you want. That's why you need to have a moral compass grounded in logic, truth, and evidence. Great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, this has been such a wonderful discussion. Thank you all so much for your, your thoughts and your contributions. This has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I do want to be mindful of your time. I know you all have uh, busy schedules yeah. and other things to go. Um, I'll just ask very quickly if any of you would like to share just like a final thought with our group, anything that you'd just sort of like to wrap up this conversation with a neat little bow. Um, Professor Williams, I guess we'll start with you. 
Sure, and I'll, uh, you know, uh, the folks I need to meet with are actually in this room, so we're going to be sliding out in a second, so <laughs> I, I can take another five minutes or so, um, okay. so uh, to, to do that. And if there are any, if you want to throw one of the questions in there, we could wrap it up in that also. I'd yeah, I'm open to that, to that too. Um, I just want to say, first of all, I, I just want to thank you guys so much for having this discussion. Um, this is so important. Uh, actually, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to read one of the comments from my student who uh, came. Uh, and he just said that uh, as an educator in the Chicago Catholic school system, I enjoyed the discussion so much. Thank you for giving me so much to think about and consider to passing along to my students. Have a wonderful day. He had to leave early and go. I think, why is that comment important? Because as human beings, we are multifaceted. And if we talk about economics without talking about our physical life, then we're out of balance. If we talk about our vocational life without talking about our relational life, we're out of balance. I think we have to talk about our spiritual lives. Um, things like love are intangible. Things like empathy are intangible. Um, we, we cannot quantify those things, but they're there. They're very much there. And so if those things are there, right, um, and uh, we are spirit, spirit beings, and the question becomes, how does that sort of manifest itself in our day-to-day lives individually and also collectively through our body politics and institutions, et cetera? So I'm so happy to be here for this discussion. I want to encourage everyone who's here to understand and recognize more than anything out of all that we've said. Um, institutions have failed us all across the board. But it does not mean that the purposes of those institutions don't exist. And... I am a firm believer that we become the change that we want to see in the world. Mm. So if we are frustrated by religious institutions, frustrated by educational institutions, frustrated by financial institutions, maybe just maybe that is our calling individually to get engaged in those institutions and to change them so that people can see something different and something better and have hope in those spaces um, for their lives and for our communities. Absolutely. What a fantastic way to, to end this discussion. That's so great. Thank you. Um, Dr. Harrison, do you have any final thoughts? That was my final thought. I just like giving examples. Um, but when I married my husband, my second husband, um, my first husband decided he wanted to be a, a, um, a practitioner of the occult. And I said, I don't think the moral code is there. So we moved on from that one. Um, my second husband and I got married in front of our co-op in, in uh, Woodlawn. And we have neighbors doing work with the Guatemalan community. Um, um, so my neighbor's Mayan. And this Mayan man, very small um, of body, a very humble human being, he gave a prayer. And they're assembled, my husband's Irish, and they're assembled in is this large group of people of many different faiths. And during the prayer, everyone felt the earth move. Remember that, Mike? Everyone felt this wave of blessing and energy. I mean, my, my mother-in-law, is 90 years old, felt it, and she was in a chair. And so this notion that there is, I mean, most of the time people deal with other people's religions with fear. And I can understand that because power and spiritual power is, you know, it's, it's awesome. Um, but, but it was a humbling moment to feel what this person who had never spoken before. I, when I traveled to Guatemala and met his villager and I told them he was my neighbor and suddenly people were in awe of me, I realized this man was a priest and had all this amazing power, never said a word, 
but that one prayer and the earth moved. And I can only imagine what we could learn from a person like that. I don't have to convert to Mayanism, but I can recognize that that person has some capacity to speak to the earth and that that is what is needed at this time. For no matter what religion you practice, mm -hmm. we all live on this planet together. Yeah. Well, and we yeah. need this world to, to continue for our children and our children's children. So in that, we must not lose the spiritual power and wisdom of the indigenous people. Mm. Thank you so much. That's such a great, fantastic point. Um, last but not least, Dr. Slice, do you have any final thoughts? So approximately 2,000, approximately 800 years ago, Abraham took his son up to a mountain. And he took up his knife he was going to sacrifice him on that mountain. All three great monotheistic traditions and the traditions of the world harken back to the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham took his knife and he was going to kill his own son. But he didn't. He put him down because God will provide. Abraham was able to see with faith the invisible and believe the impossible. And this is what essence of faith is. Seeing the invisible in life and believing the impossible. Because it comes from a hand who has done all that. That would be the hand of the divine. And I personally believe that's the hand of Christ, who himself is pierced for the blood and the turmoil and the pain of those around him. So they vicariously, through his suffering, people can find hope, meaning, and significance. I found that at 15 years old on a bed of suicide. And I found that hope meaning, significance in my life to help pour into the lives of the people around me and help them see the invisible, incredible potential each one of them has to achieve the impossible in their own lives and in their communities. Mm. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our panelists. This has been a truly wonderful and enlightening discussion. Um, I have enjoyed every moment of this and I am so grateful that you all took some time to be here today. Um, I will encourage everyone to, uh, if you're available, to join us next week. We're going to be kind of finishing this conversation up with some um, local pastors um, and folks who practice religion in our own community here uh, in DeKalb. We're going to be talking about bringing um, a lens of inclusivity into your religious practice. So sort of talking more about what we've just sort of covered today. Um, and it's going to be our final town hall of the whole semester. Um, I'd also just like to thank everyone who has been with us this entire semester. I see some familiar names and faces um, in this Zoom call, and I really, truly appreciate all of you for coming and showing up every week and learning alongside us and having conversations that matter, because that's really what we're here to do. Um, so thank you all so much. Uh, look out for your follow-up email, where we'll just sort of give you some uh, resources that were shared, and we'll talk uh, a little bit more about uh, next week. So. Thank you all. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you, guys. And my students, please pop into our other Zoom room. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> Continue your learning. <laughs> thank you Bye, all. everybody. Thanks Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jocelyn. Be well. Thank, thank you, Jay. Thank you, Dr. Harrison. Nice to meet yes, you. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so Jane. much. Thank well, you. happy. Thank you. Bye. Blessings. Bye, Bye guys. Thanks again, Jane. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Swayze. Right, this bye -bye. was great. Thank you.